0: Short play, Alex, it is being called the slap herd round the world. Actor Will Smith confronted comedian Chris Rock at the Oscars and slapped him after Rock made a joke about Smith's wife.
1: Nick, it's important to remember that Will Smith used an open hand when slapping Chris Rock, and there's a good reason for that. It's because paper always beats Rock. <laughs>
0: there it is.
1: Uh, Every this, time. Paper beef drop.
0: This, this is Sword Play uh, offering a double edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California.
1: I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Sword Play, We are going to take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a continuation of our look at the person, the character of Solomon uh, from the Old Testament.
1: That's right. Now, Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so we want to dive in here, and um, Alex, maybe you could... Shine some light on on this. It, it's called Ecclesiastes. Where in the world did that name come from? Why is the book called Ecclesiastes?:
1: Yeah, that's a good question. The title stems from the Greek rendering of the text and then later the Latin, which is the, the same word. In verse one, where it says the words of the preacher, the word for preacher is, guess what? Ecclesiastes. So literally the book is called the Preacher." Now, if you go through and you read through some reference works, some commentaries, you'll notice that uh, not everyone agrees on the translation of uh, Ecclesiastes. Not everyone agrees that it should be called preacher. But when you assess everything that's been put out there at the end of the day, that really is the best guess. So other ideas for translation have included the gatherer or the assembler. But yeah, this isn't really the name, it's a title. So it's the preacher. So who's the preacher? Who wrote
0: Ecclesiastes? Nick, who's the author? You know, in a way, Ecclesiastes is similar to our discussion of Proverbs in the previous episode. Solomon is responsible for the bulk of the material, but there are other sages who were involved in Proverbs. Well, in the case of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes a first-person autobiography from 1 verse 12 all the way to 12 verse 7. And he identifies himself as the preacher in 1 verse 12. Uh, and as you noted, it's a, it's a it's a contentious, a debated term as to what exactly it means, uh, but it seems to mean uh, teacher uh, or assembler. The Hebrew term is kohelet. Uh, however, Solomon's autobiography is bookended or framed <clears throat> by another unidentified sage, and, and some have called him the frame narrator for Ecclesiastes. And so, for example, Roden and Forrest, in their book, Biblical Leadership, they write, to properly read the book of Ecclesiastes, we must be careful to identify there are two speakers in the book, not just one, uh, Estes in his Handbook of Wisdom Books and Psalms, makes a similar observation. The book of Ecclesiastes is composed with a framework written in the third person, which is 1 verse 1 through verse 11, and then also 12 verse 8 through verse 14. That And that encloses, that framework encloses the main section written as a first-person autobiography, again, 1 12 to 12 verse 7. So there's Kohelet, the assembler, the preacher, Solomon, but there's also the unidentified wise man who bookends Ecclesiastes with his Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on Koholeth's ranting. And so I think this is vital for a proper reading of the book. That's who I see as the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. What say you, Alex?
1: Yeah, I agree. There was an editing hand uh, that we definitely definitely see at the end of the book. Um, And I I have a little... Different breakup of where the editor is at at the beginning of the book, but we'll get to that in a moment. But Solomon is the writer of the bulk of the book. So there are, of course, objections that people might make as you read through reference works, commentaries. I found two objections for Solomon being the author of the uh, main body of work within Ecclesiastes. And so I think it's worth noting what these objections are because you will run into these in scholarship. But uh, I disagree with these objections. I'll tell you why uh, these are worth noting and why they don't make sense to me. So the first objection is that uh, some will say that the author complains about injustice as if he couldn't do anything about it. But Solomon, he's the king. He should be able to do something about it. So what gives? Obviously, this can't be Solomon. And then they'll... Reference chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, and chapter 7, verse 7. My problem with this objection, though, is that Solomon never says that he couldn't do anything about the injustice that he sees. He's just saying that this is what he observes happening in the world. And you know what? Even if Solomon acts upon moments of injustice, his rule as sovereign in the land, it can't undo the wickedness in people's hearts. And he speaks to that as well. As soon as he saw one injustice, another follows on its heels. Also, a king, though he's the sovereign, he still has to deal within the complexities of alliances and politics and those who hold significant influence and power and wealth within the land. He's not the only one with those things, you know. So this is part of Solomon's point in actually chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, that you have one official who watches and covers for another official, and then those officials have higher officials who watch and cover over them. So the system protects itself, and that perpetuates injustice. Solomon points this out. So I think it is still pretty clear that he's the author, even though he complains about injustice. The second objection, though, is that uh, some will say the author is using some strange words. They're using words that are borrowed from the Persian language. And you know what? That wouldn't have been found in a Hebrew text before 539 BC. Therefore, the author of that time, post-539 BC, must have been the author of this letter, must have contributed to this letter. Well, my problem with this particular objection is that it doesn't actually have any solid proof for defining the authorship. It doesn't necessarily affect authorship at all. As a text, an ancient text, that survives for hundreds and then thousands of years, it has to get copied along the way. And it's common scribal practice that when it gets copied, every now and then, certain terms will be updated to the most recent vernacular to make it available to the current uh, generation. So linguistic updates on ancient texts don't necessarily equate to additional authorship. That's my main objection to that. So you're going to find that people don't think Solomon wrote the things that it says Solomon wrote. And here are those things you'll run into. But this ties into when was Ecclesiastes written then, because... If you think it was written by Solomon or by somebody else, that will affect when you think it was written. So, Nick, when do you think Ecclesiastes was written?
0: Well, again, assuming Solomonic authorship, which we do, the material from Solomon dates from his reign in Israel. And that would have been in the 10th century B.C. Now, as I've been pointing out along the way, as we've been studying Song of Solomon, Proverbs now Ecclesiastes my read of the Solomonic corpus that's contained in the Hebrew Bible is that Song of Solomon was written by a young Solomon with all the youthful vigor of a young man in love. And then Proverbs was written when Solomon was middle-aged, seeking to impart wisdom to his son or sons. And Ecclesiastes is the Uh, Final work of Solomon, written when he is an old man, he's embittered, he's jaded by life, and that bitterness really comes across in his denouncement of everything as vanity. Uh, And that's a a term that shows up again and again, and one that we'll look at here more closely as we go along. Now, as far as the time of composition for the bookends... Right, remembering that uh, my read of this from one twelve to twelve seven, that's all Solomon, and that that's from him. Well, what about those bookends that are written by the unidentified sage, one verses one through eleven and twelve verses eight through fourteen? Uh, s- determining the the date for that is difficult because well, we don't know who who that person was. It's it's difficult to be dogmatic about this. I I suppose that someone could argue that. Perhaps he was part of the cohort that Hezekiah tasked with collecting and copying the Proverbs of Solomon. And if we really want to get crazy with the cheese Whiz, I suppose that we could speculate that it may be Hezekiah himself who framed the narrative. But all of this is mere speculation. Uh, The best we can say is sometime after Solomon composed his portion, an unidentified, uh, inspired writer came along, and attached the beginning and the ending to what Solomon had written, uh, further elucidating what we're reading here from Solomon's hand. So that's what I see in terms of date. What do you think, Alex? When was Ecclesiastes written?
1: Well, I agree. Solomon's the author, so his portion, whatever portion you ascribe to him, is going to have to be written during his lifetime. I think towards the end of his life is probably a reasonable... Uh, proposal, Uh, if you take a non-Solomonic authorship position, you're going to likely say that it was written within the range of the 7th to 4th century BC. Now, those who take that position, it seems to me that that's based primarily on linguistic analysis. So if we look at the manuscripts that we have of Ecclesiastes, uh, people have noted that they seem to be more Aramaic in origin, more Aramaic than Hebrew. Of course, Aramaic became the common language for the Jews during and post-exile. So if the original Ecclesiastes is Aramaic, then it has to be written much, much later than Solomon's time. However, I think that there probably was an editor who gathered the written and oral tradition during that exilic period and composed a fresh, complete copy of Ecclesiastes. He's probably that guy who added the ending that we see in twelve, uh, eight, and following. And that copy then became the new standard for future copies. That's why all of our existing copies look like they come from an Aramaic original. You know you have editing like this happening with ancient texts uh naturally frequently such editing though it does not in itself mean that okay something was corrupted in the process it doesn't mean that the spiritual truth and the intent of the original was lost whatever the linguistic analysis is it's ultimately impossible to prove or disprove authorship with manuscript data alone because the earliest copies we have of Ecclesiastes, they're still going to be 800 years removed from Solomon's time. And so that means that's 800 years that Solomon's writing is going to be subject to copyists, uh, translation, fragmentation, and recompilation. And such natural occurrences, those aren't scary things. They have to happen. And they're not indicative of textual unreliability. You can still have reliable text even though those things have to happen. I do think that it does require a little bit more faith in God's divine providence, though, to to provide and to preserve his truth within a written text. Written texts have a shelf life. So when you're trying to keep it alive for hundreds or thousands of years, there has to be some divine providence in there. And it seems clearer to me the more I study textual transmission that I think oral tradition must play in our evaluation of all this an important role, maybe even more important than the role of physical manuscripts as we talk about biblical interpretation. So as a Christian, as a believer in the divinity of the inspiredness of the Bible, I think it's just fine to start with the presupposition of Solomonic authorship, and then from that position to look for what you would expect to affirm that position within the existing evidence, the extent evidence that we have. I think that's worthwhile. And I think it's worthwhile because, you know, the religious communities for which these writings were written and received, uh, that's the way they viewed it. They viewed it as, hey, we've always seen this as Solomon's work. And so to me it seems perfectly reasonable then, as a modern believer in the Bible, to carry on that same oral tradition, uh, as we look at the written tradition in front of us. So Nick, we have Ecclesiastes in front of us. Why do you think it was written in the first place? We're taking Solomonic authorship plus an editor. What did they want to accomplish?
0: Dwayne Garrett in his commentary on Ecclesiastes for the New American Commentary, writes that Ecclesiastes has been subjected to a bewildering array of interpretations. and then he provides several uh, of examples which uh, have been offered historically concerning the purpose. Uh, as I look at Ecclesiastes and, and keep it in mind that Ecclesiastes is this frame narrative. It's a, a composition of these two writers, Solomon and the Sage it may be possible to identify two purposes. There's Solomon's purpose and then there's the sage's purpose. Solomon's purpose revolves around the theme vanity or meaningless. The Hebrew there is havel. And so he seems to take as his thesis uh, 1 verse 2, which is the summary statement by the sage, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity. Uh, All is vanity. So though there are these These are the words of the sage. Again, he is accurately capturing Solomon's main point. Now, that term, uh, Hebel, appears over 30 times in Ecclesiastes, and most of these uses are from Solomon's pen. Each time Solomon reflects on what he observes in life, he asserts that all is indeed Hebel under the sun. And at the same time, despite his best efforts, He simply cannot get away from the goodness of faith and fearing God. Uh, For example, in 8 verses 12 and 13, there he writes, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So at various points, even Solomon, jaded though he is, cannot escape the cold, hard fact that God is the one you must fear, as he writes in 5 and verse 7. So, while Solomon rants about the enigma of life and and labels it mostly meaningless or inconsequential, the sage who frames the book not only succinctly summarizes Solomon's message in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, he then summarizes the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments, there in 12 and verse 13. The coming judgment is the impetus for such living, verse 14 makes clear. So Forrest and uh, Rodin, I mentioned their book earlier, they put these words into the mouth of the sage. You know, son, Coalette is 100% correct. If you look for meaning apart from God's revelation, you will conclude that life is meaningless. This lesson is hard to hear. It's like goads, it's like firmly implanted nails, but it's important for you to hear. Or, I guess said another way, if you're looking for wisdom or meaning under the sun, you will end up only with an enigma. And This is why you must look above the sun to God for wisdom, meaning, and significance. So that's what I see here concerning the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Why was it written?
1: You know, I think Solomon seems to have two major overarching purposes for writing Ecclesiastes. First, it seems Solomon wants to give the common man a simple set of rules for living life. Enjoy your food and drink. Enjoy the work of your hands. Enjoy doing good. And enjoy it all with a woman you love. Of course, that's only four points. So if you want a five-point sermon, I guess you can add the editors uh, fear God, right? So enjoy those things. You get that from chapter 2, verses 24-25, chapter 3, verse 12-13, through 13. chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy your food and drink, the work of your hands, doing good, and with the woman you love. Of course, all of these things, they're not found conveniently in one place. As I listed the references, they are found within the ranting. <laughs> so while it is a simple list, and a good one, it's not a simple task to pull it out of what I'm going to label as Solomon's vexation I mean, he calls it vexation, so I guess that's what it is. That brings me to what I see as the second purpose of Solomon's writing. This man, Solomon, he has discovered something painful in his gathering of wisdom and insight. Get that in chapter 1, verse 18. And by discovering, uh, what he really means is by revelation. Get that in chapter 8, verse 17. He says, I saw every work which man cannot discover. It's like, okay, well, then how did you discover it? It's (laughs) like, well, it must have been by divine revelation. So whatever it is that vexes Solomon so much that he says at one point, you know, he he, he has uh, the joy that you're supposed to have from these things that he said you should have, uh, it would be good to tell yourself your labor is good. It's like all these, all these things. It seems like he can't do that for himself. He can't find that joy. He doesn't have that joy. He's lost it, and for some reason, it's tied to whatever it is that's been revealed to him. So whatever it is that vexes Solomon so much that's been revealed to him, he speaks around it, you know, whatever it is, whatever uh, sometimes this task is or this hidden work of God. So his purpose is not actually to reveal everything he knows. In fact, it kind of makes it sound like he's saying, it's better not to know what I know. (laughs) So he does this to vent his frustration. If Solomon at times sounds like a ranting madman, well... The words of Agrippa come to mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. Go read the book of Acts, you Bible nerds. I know you know what I'm talking about. Come on. So something about this writing must have been a cathartic exercise for Solomon. I think Solomon's uh, writing actually starts, this kind of goes back with the structure question, in chapter 1, verse 3, and I think it ends in chapter 12, verse 7. I think chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, they're... uh, the same verse. I think those are original to Solomon's work as well. It's not him speaking, but it's offset as this introductory and conclusion uh, statement. Like uh, I imagine a royal MC shouting the intro and exit song as Solomon approaches and then leaves the pulpit. Hear ye, hear ye, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Mic drop. I see chapter 1, verse 1, and then later chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. That's the editor later on. And and I think he does have his own purpose as well. So that brings me to the editor's purpose. I think the editor's purpose is to uh, do a little PR spin on (laughs) on some of the things that Solomon has written here. Uh, This cathartic exercise of Solomon, it is full of uh, all kinds of strange things and a uh, little depressing, a little depressing. You know, it's not It's not like reading Philippians, right? It's, it's not a whole lot of uplifting things to meditate upon. So the editor comes along. He does a little PR spin. We'll, we'll call it a divinely approved PR spin. And uh, he says about this writing, you know, on the one hand, hey, it came from Solomon. And he's an inspired writer. But on the other hand, it's full of riddles inside of mysteries wrapped in enigmas. So someone had to come along and say, yeah, thank you, preacher. That was a good sermon. Sounds like what you're saying is we should all trust God and remember that everything we do will be judged. <laughs> <laughs> it's like,, it's like oh, thank you for that second sermon, because uh, I'm not really sure if I would have caught that uh, my first time through the ranting, but uh, that was a good that was a good spin. Thank you. Um, the one common purpose I do see though, between the editor and Solomon is that they both agree that sometimes there are things that are better not to know now that's it's something to think about there's there are things that are better not to know for the editor excessive devotion to writing and learning is weary to the body chapter 12 verse 12 for solomon much wisdom brings much grief increasing knowledge increases grief that's chapter 1 verse 18 so these are not absolute statements they're cautionary statements but the letter does i think explore that area in between then of not having enough wisdom and then having too much wisdom what is it that you should know and it does kind of boil down to well i think you should know that it's best to fear god to trust him to carry out his commandments and whatever it is that you need to know he'll let you know <laughs> that seems to be the, the the summary purpose of the letter. Well, Nick, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there is an arrangement of material. How do you see the arrangement in the book of Ecclesiastes?
0: Yeah, from the 30,000-foot uh, vantage point, uh, as I've been explaining, I, I believe it's a frame narrative. Uh, coming close... Uh, And and looking at uh, the book in a bit more detail, Solomon deals with just about every subject under the sun. He talks about wisdom in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, wealth in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, also chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. There's an evaluation of both wisdom and wealth in 2, verses 12 through 26, and chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, uh, he talks about time and the world in three verses one through fifteen, justice and politics shows up uh, several times three sixteen four verses one through three, also verses thirteen through sixteen chapter eight verses two through six, uh, death in chapter three verses eighteen through twenty two and old age in chapter twelve verses one through seven so again, just about every subject under the sun. Uh, Solomon is seeking to deal with, address, talk about in in some manner, in some regard. And so that's what I see here in terms of how the material is arranged in Ecclesiastes. What do you think, Alex?
1: Yeah, I think that's good. The only thing I would add, uh, since I do see chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 as also being from Solomon, is uh, for me in that section, you have a summary of the cyclical nature of all things, the cyclical nature of all things. And there's something about that cyclical nature that uh, Solomon has learned that doesn't doesn't rub him the right way. <laughs> so, hmm. but there are yeah these sections that you've laid laid out for us. There are also themes that cross over into
0: multiple sections. And so, what are some of those themes that you see, Nick? Well, I, I mentioned under the sun. I, that's a big one uh, that shows up uh, 29 times. Uh, Hebel, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, shows up uh, dozens of times. Yeah. And in terms of that, let me just uh, tack on here what we've been talking about. Uh, Estes uh, writes, the literal sense of Hebel is vapor or breath, and in its abstract uses in Ecclesiastes, it refers to anything that is superficial, ephemeral, insubstantial, incomprehensible, enigmatic, inconsistent, or contradictory. No single term can adequately encompass the sense of this key concept in Ecclesiastes, and interpreters have used various terms to render it. Hence, my English standard says uh, vanity, of vanities, that's your term there for uh, Hebel, and how it's translated by those translators. My preference, and again, it's not, there's no single term that can capture it in all of its context, but my preference is the term enigma, uh, although absurd, is uh, good too. So uh, those are a couple that I see. Uh, what other major themes did you catch in Ecclesiastes, Alex?
1: Well, I definitely think you caught the major ones, right? The Vanity and under the sun. Um, so these are maybe some minor themes. I found some interesting uh, things going on with the phrase sons of men, sons of men. And when you come across that, you may just think it's, uh, well, he's just talking about humanity in general. Uh, I'm not so sure. You look at chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 10, and 18, and 19, chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 9, verse 3, and verse 12. You have this phrase, sons of men. And I would put before you the idea that every time that's used, it's almost always, if not always, in a negative sense. In a negative sense, it's used in the sense of um People who are evil, they have evil in their heart, they perpetuate evil. It doesn't sound like he's talking about everybody. It sounds like he's talking about a certain group of people. And he calls this the sons of men. I think that may be theologically significant when we compare that to what we are now called in Christ. That is, we are the sons of God. Christians are not the sons of men. Christians are the sons of God. Now, the sons of God are almost always in the Old Testament referred to uh, angels. Not always, almost always. So you have this idea that, okay, the angels, these holy ones, those who stand in the presence of Yahweh God, they are the sons of God. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul says, Galatians 3.26 and following, uh all of us who have been baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ we are now all sons of god so i wonder if there's something of a contrast to be seen there the fate of the sons of men versus what will later be more explained concerning the fates of the sons of god and perhaps that's part of solomon's vexation is maybe he doesn't know about that part yet maybe <laughs> so i don't know another theme um, and this is a very minor theme, but it just seemed to me that he has this over this undertone, we'll say, of uh the inevitability of labor. The inevitability of labor. And how you you can't avoid labor, chapter four, verses four through six, chapter five, verse twelve, because first of all, you either work or you don't eat, right? The man who folds his arms, his muscles waste away. Uh also, though, let's say you're rich and wealthy, uh, and you don't necessarily need to Labor per se, he says, No, you should still labor. Cause chapter five, verse twelve, uh if you don't labor, you don't sleep. You don't sleep, you stay up at night. And so the inevitability of labor, work or starve. Well, I'm rich, I don't need to labor. Well, do you need to sleep? Work or you're not gonna sleep very good. That seems to be the idea. And so that kind of ties into the idea of well, if you have to labor, if it's inevitable, because it's good for you then you should labor in a way that you can enjoy enjoy the work of your hands see your labor is good okay another minor theme i saw was um goes with the habel the vanity and it's the striving after wind striving after wind. those usually go together but not always chapter 1 verse 14 verse 17 chapter 2 verse 11 verse 17 verse 26 chapter 4 verse 4 and 6 chapter 4 verse 16 Chapter 6, verse 9. So in the Septuagint, uh, it's translated as a, a preference of the spirit. Uh, depending on how you translate "numa." Numa can be wind or spirit. Uh, striving, then, can also be preference. It's somewhat of a riddle, somewhat of, of an enigma in itself. It's like, what exactly is that talking about? Uh, maybe it brings to mind the the, what is it from the 60s or 70s? Running against the wind. Something like that. I don't know. Uh, striving after the wind. It kind of seems like what he means by that is there's no good solution here. There's no good solution here. He uh, says in chapter 1, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. It sounds like what he's saying is that like, this is kind of the way it is, and there's actually no no solution. In all of my wisdom, all of my learning, there's no solution for this. So here's the best that you can do under the circumstances because it's all striving after the wind. Okay, last minor theme that I saw was this obsession with remembrance. I think obsession is right because this seems to be part of the core of what really bothers Solomon. Uh, you go to chapter 1, verse 11. It says, there's no remembrance of early things, also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Uh, that's the NASB I'm reading from. There are some differences there in the Septuagint. Uh, you go to chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Chapter 8, verse 10 says, So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they Did thus. This too is futility. Chapter 9, verse 5 For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. And chapter 9, verse 15 But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor man. Uh, This whole thing about being remembered uh, really bothers Solomon. Uh, I would call it somewhat of an obsession. This is a minor theme within the book. Well, that's uh, all very good and interesting, and obviously we're going to have to come back to this one day and kind of jump into this chapter-by-chapter analysis that we do. But uh, for the purpose of introduction, moving along, Nick, how do you see Ecclesiastes interacting with the rest of Scripture? We call this intertextual studies. What do you think?
0: Yeah, and, and I appreciated the, the connection uh, earlier that you made doing a little uh, preview of the inter- intertextual studies with the sons of men versus sons of God bit. That's good connection there. And that's really what we're talking about, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. How does Ecclesiastes uh, interact with Uh, these other portions of Scripture. And um, so, by no means exhaustive, uh, but I do have a few that I want to bring to the listener's attention, and that is uh, Ecclesiastes, as it is read in view of Genesis 3, humanity has been subjected to a futile life of toil and death. Uh, Genesis 3, verses uh, 17 through 19, there's part of the curse. The ground is cursed, and and despite all of the sweaty, painful work, all you get is thorns and thistles. You work your whole life, and then you die. You are dust, and to dust you shall return, verse 19 of Genesis 3 says. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should if you're reading along with us in Ecclesiastes, because chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, uh, that's essentially Solomon's point that's what he's summarizing i i hated all my toil in which i toil under the sun he says Um, he says uh, in verse uh, 22 what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun all of his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation Uh, even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity 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 it's absurd right uh, under the sun, there is only futile, absurd work until you die. And uh, truly, unredeemed work viewed through the perspective of under the sun, uh, it, it is void of meaning, and Solomon seems to be keying in on this.
1: Can I add one more verse to that? Chapter, yeah, go for it. Chapter 12, verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Mm -hmm. So you have that continuation of from dusty came to dusty
0: return, and that cycle is vanity. Go ahead, sorry. No, good, 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 good. Um, You come into the the New Testament, a couple of connections. Uh, One is in the book of Romans, chapter 8, and uh, Ecclesiastes read through the eyes of Paul, it would seem, in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it uh, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's that first phrase there, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Um, hmm. Ecclesiastes was originally written in Hebrew, and as the Jewish people assimilated more and more into Hellenistic culture and adopted the Uh, Greek language, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek and the product of that is called the Septuagint. Alex has uh, been uh, working uh, in his reading through that particular translation, the Septuagint. The Hebrew term, Hebel, was translated by the Greek term metaiatase. And I mention this because that's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 8 and verse 20 in discussing the present state of creation. The creation was subjected to futility, to metiates, to hebel, if you will. Futility, here in Romans 8 and verse 20, that's koheleth's vanity or absurdity. And so koheleth said, the world is absurd. And Paul says, amen. You see, while the, the creation originally was good, even very good, now due to sin- A state of enigmatic and absurd contradictions exist. Work is futile. Pleasure is fleeting. Popularity is temporary. You can't take your money with you. And wisdom is ignored by most people. Health gives out. Everyone dies. Things are not supposed to be this way. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. And so, therefore, creation groans, and then we, in the midst of creation, groan, and then the spirit within us groans, as Paul explains in Romans 8, verses 22 through 23. Uh, the picture there that's sometimes used is of the, those nesting dolls Uh, where you have the one, and if you take the top off of the one doll, there's another doll inside. And if you take the next, there's a little mini doll in the middle of it all. And so uh, that's kind of what Paul is saying is you have creation, and and then you peel back that layer, and there we are in the midst of creation. You peel off that layer, and there's the spirit within us. And all of it is groaning because of sin. It's not supposed to be this way. And so these absurdities, these enigmas exist as a result. Uh, So... Uh, That's, again, another uh, intertextual study, uh, a linguistic connection that I think is significant and intentional. Uh, Finally, uh, one more is from Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, where you set your mind on the things above the sun. You see, under the sun, as I mentioned, that's a significant phrase in Ecclesiastes, 1 verse 3, verse 9, verse 14, 2 verse 11, 17, 18. There's actually 29 times. I'm not going to list all of them, but they're there. 29 times, by my count, you have that phrase, under the sun. So long as we are focused on life under the sun, we will only experience frustration. We will only experience a crisis of meaning. Or to borrow Paul's phrase, it would be absurd to set our minds on the things that are on the earth. The world is temporary. Uh, we've, we've learned this in big, bold letters uh, with the word COVID, right? COVID-19. And the, those stay-at-home orders, those, those were temporary. Uh, wars are temporary. Everything in this world is temporary. And so we need an eternal perspective. We need to see things the way God sees them as best we can. And we need to seek what God desires. We need to seek the things that are above and above the sun. That's the contrast. Even though uh, that uh, phrase not necessarily used in Ecclesiastes, that's the contrast. You're focused on everything down here under the sun. You need an above-the-sun perspective in this, and uh, Paul supplies us that in Colossians 3.12. So reading, again, Ecclesiastes through Paul's eyes, I think we see that so those were those were some connections that I made uh from Ecclesiastes elsewhere in scripture you you got any more, Alex?
1: yeah, just remember that uh chapter one verse ten when the uh, lockdown orders happen again. <laughs> see mm-hmm. this is it new? No, it's already existed for ages which were before us. <laughs> <laughs> I did find one connection to the New Testament when reading from the Septuagint of Ecclesiastes, that Greek version. You get an extra bit of uh, information here in chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, uh, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Right before that, for this is your reward part, the Septuagint adds all days are days of your vapor all days are days of your vapor uh that's likely what james is quoting in chapter 4 verse 14 and we did a podcast on the book of james so you can go back and listen to that in the archives but james chapter 4 verse 14 says yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow that's one of the points the preacher makes in ecclesiastes you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away that looks like it was lifted right out of Ecclesiastes, but maybe that's uh, just me seeing that. And that's all I have on Ecclesiastes, Nick. Do you have anything else?
0: No. Wow. We uh, we upholstered a subject in forty-three minutes or less.
1: <laughs> that's got to be a new personal record. So, congratulations. Forty-three no, to minutes, you as well, sir. Introduction. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, why don't you tell our audience how they can help the podcast?
0: Yeah, we are in just about every place you can stream uh, or download or take with you the podcast Spotify, uh, iTunes Store, uh, there's the Google uh, Music, there's Amazon. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're all over the place. And if you happen to do the uh, Apple uh, iTunes app, feel free, leave a review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars there, and that'll help boost us in the podcast area there. Um, also, feel free share this on social media. Uh, get the word out, let folks know what we're doing here. Uh, that'll help us as well. If you have a question, we've done question and answer shows before, and so if you have a question, you can send it in via text to 316- 24 sword that's three one six two four seven nine six seven three, and we get your question we'll answer it on the show uh, as they come to us or if you want to email it in alex they can send it to
1: yeah send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com that's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we like to save those questions bring them in on one of our q a episodes and we do appreciate you and your listening of what we have provided here. We hope it's been helpful, and we will see you next time on another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture.